Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. In John chapter eight, from verse one through verse thirty-one, and I realized something. Is everything working okay back there with the? Uh, okay, so I realized something. There was a comment on one of the um, videos that I did. I think it was the last video that I did. And it said, did Brother Dan ever finish John chapter 7? And I thought, well, yeah, I, I, I did. Um, it's, it, it's all in one video, John chapter 7. It's not part 1 and part 2, it's just John chapter 7. And the notes have the entire chapter of John chapter 7. And she said, I think Brother Dan only went to like verse 30 something. And I thought, you know, let me check that out. Boy, was she right, okay? So I ended up stopping at like verse 36 of John chapter 7. We alluded to some things last week that I taught. Um, I said, you remember how, you guys all remember how John chapter 7 ended, right? And I kind of gave a, a summary and I had kind of some like blank faces. Um, and now I realize why, because we did not go over any of that. So what we're going to do, Lord willing, here, um, before we get back into John chapter 8, and I know this is completely unorthodox, I told Mark, and I was kind of like, has this ever happened to you, where you had the entire thing on one thing in notes, and then you ended up not finishing that entire section of scripture before the Bible study was over? And he said, I don't know. But anyway, (laughs) so I don't know, has he? You guys have been here for longer than I have. Okay, so we have a an end of chapter 7 recap, okay? Okay, that's good too. So what you're going to see here, the end of chapter 7 recap, is from the chapter 7 notes, if you still have those, okay? Um, We mentioned that the Feast of Tabernacles is going on, okay, at this time, with uh, Jesus being in the temple, and it's that last day, that great day of the feast we talked about, the end of John chapter 7. But the statements that he makes and the things that he say that he says both kind of relate to the context of what's been going on dealing with the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. There was a number of different things that happened, something uh, involving a huge menorah. Okay, the base of it was 50 cubits high, which is 75 feet. And you've heard this before when Mark has taught on uh, the feasts and specifically the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, but I just wanted to mention it because this is the passage in John chapter 7, uh, where this part of this feast is dealt with. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Okay? He, that, he that believeth on me or he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And then also, the water libation, 
was something that was uh, in place as a tradition regarding Sukkot by the time of Jesus, where the priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam and there'd be a big procession every morning during the seven days of the Feast of Sukkot. They would go down there in this big procession. It would be a big deal and they would draw waters out of the Pool of Siloam. They would take it up to the altar and they would pour it upon the altar, that water that they would draw from the Pool of Siloam. And there was a, a passage of scripture I believe it's from Isaiah uh, that was chanted with joy you shall draw waters out of the pools of uh, out of the wells of salvation and they would sing this they would say this and so Jesus in verse number 37 picking up here where I have at the beginning of your notes here in that last day that great day of the feast Jesus stood and cried if any man thirst let him come unto me and drink and there's a direct correlation to what's happening in the context right around him with the water libation every day of those seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 38, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And as Mark has said, the symbolism had to be striking. And when we read this, we kind of just kind of glaze over it. You know, we'll skim over it, or at best, we'll read it slowly and intentionally, and we'll try and ascertain the meaning of it, but we'll do so in a Western Christian American context. We kind of read into the scripture what's going on. You know, you may hear some preacher say something about, you know, so-and-so was sipping some sweet tea and, um, you know, something that was not part of the um, Jewish culture back then, um, but is our modern day American Western culture that we read into this. And a lot of times we kind of look at things that way when we shouldn't. I don't know about you guys, but when I first got saved and I would read the Bible, you know, for the first time as a born-again Christian, I would look at things in the New Testament and I wouldn't immediately, automatically look at them in a Jewish context. I would look at, because, you know, half Jewish, half Gentile, raised in a basically uh, Christian type of home with a Gentile upbringing, um, when I looked at Jesus and his disciples, when I looked at the people of the New Testament, when I looked at Paul, when I looked at his writings, when I looked at the, the disciples, when I looked at Peter, James, and John, I kind of viewed them as, well, they're Christians like me, you know? And I didn't outrightly say, well, they're Americans living in, you know, the 21st century. <laughs> but automatically our mindset tries to view them not in a Israeli, first century, Jewish context. And we have to think about that. We have to purposefully realize that. Now you guys have been coming to this Bible study for a long time and you realize this context. But all those other people that go to the same church that you go to likely don't look at it that way. Uh, even in good churches, Bible believing, Bible preaching churches that um, hold up the uh, literal interpretation of the scripture they may even preach an expository message verse by verse, and yet so many times that pastor is a Gentile with a Gentile upbringing and background, and the majority, 99.9% .9 of the people in that church are likely Gentiles as well. So nothing is said and nothing is caught and nothing is realized by the majority. Now you guys are not the majority, okay? Um, but it makes it all the more amazing when we look at the scripture in its Jewish context, you know, things like the mystery that the Gentiles also should be fellow heirs 
And like in, in, in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius getting saved and the Jewish people that were there were just like, what in the world just happened? This Gentile, he got the Holy Spirit just like we did. And the Bible says they glorified God because of this. We can take our salvation and what we have as Christians, as believers, we can take that for granted. And when we realize the, uh, the literal context of all these things, it makes it so much more rich so much more full, so much more amazing uh, that, that we are the children of Abraham by faith, whether you are a Gentile or a Jew. And there's amazing things about that, that the Gentiles have been grafted in to the same olive tree, and we will rule and reign with the Jewish Messiah, King of Israel, uh, forever. I thought for a second that was mine, but I have it on vibrate. Okay. Um, so, this amazing symbolism. In verse 39, when he was talking about the uh, rivers of living water, you know, Scripture is it's often its own best commentary. And we let it interpret itself. Verse 39, but this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, I have a couple of notes here about the reception of the Holy Spirit and its relation to Jesus being glorified and ascending to heaven. In John chapter 6 and verse 44, as well as John chapter 12 and verse 32. Turn back a couple of pages, if you're in John 8 in your Bibles, to John chapter 6 verse 44. And I'm hoping, by the way, to finish John chapter 8 tonight. Um, we'll see. John chapter 6, verse 44. No man can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him. Now, this will kind of refresh your memories a little bit. We talked about this kind of in depth. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, flip over a couple pages to John chapter 12 and verse number 32. John chapter number 12, verse number 32. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And so, what's the correlation between no man can come to the Father except, uh, can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him? And Jesus saying that when I am lifted up, then all men will be drawn unto me. Well, here, it's interesting. Uh, verse number 39, the end of it, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. What did Jesus say? He said, uh, you know, you can't receive uh, the Holy Spirit. It's expedient that I go away. So that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, would come. Okay? If I go away, I will send him unto you, the Bible says. And so as a result of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the Holy Spirit was given. And what does the Holy Spirit do, as Mark so often says? He's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, judgment to come. And so that is how the Holy Spirit draws all men. All men are going to be in some way convicted of sin, 
righteousness and judgment to come. Now that's not the Holy Spirit saying to them in some miraculous way, Jesus is the Savior, you need to repent and trust him. He died, was buried, and rose again three days later for you to be saved. Be saved now. That's not what it says. But the Holy Spirit, in his uh, drawing of all men, brings conviction to all men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so there's a direct correlation between the Holy Spirit coming and Jesus leaving. And that is mentioned also here in this verse, verse 39, uh, that the Holy Ghost was not yet given. Those who came to Jesus in John 6 were drawn by the Father. Jesus said in John 12 that after his death, he would draw all men unto himself. This is done through the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. When did the Holy Spirit come? Only after the death, burial, and resurrection and glorification, ascension, okay, those two are synonymous here, of Jesus. Okay, are we ready for the next section of verses, verse 40 through 48? Okay, let's, let's jump into it. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, this is, a, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? See, they were thinking that he originated from Galilee. Did he originate from Galilee? No, he was born in Bethlehem. You know, humanly speaking, earthly speaking, his origin, his physical earthly origin, um, he was born in Bethlehem. Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh from the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? See, they were confused. So there was a division among the people because of him, and some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers of the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never a man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? Many actually did. There's an amazing passage in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that talks about many of the chief priests believed on him, trusted him as their Messiah. Uh, also in John chapter 12, in verse 42, many of the chief rulers and priests, as well as Nicodemus, Pharisees and chief priests, chief rulers, there was many that did. Verse 49, but this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. You see, the people uh, that are kind of the ruling authority, the Judean religious authority, the Pharisees and the chief priests, and the chief priests were of the, 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 the sect of the Sadducees, okay? They never really got along except with their common goal of thwarting Jesus and destroying Jesus, their plot to kill him, their plot to destroy him. That's the only time that they really got along. But the Pharisees were the party of the people, the common everyday Israelite, Israeli, okay? And the, um, they were made up of those common everyday people, whereas the Sadducees, the Zedoxim as it is in Hebrew, they were the ones that were the chief priests. They were the ones that were also the ones that were kind of looked at as royalty. And so, um, and so they had kind of this, this lording over the people. You guys don't know the law. You're looking at it all wrong. Aren't you also deceived? Why haven't you taken him? And this is the chief priests and the Pharisees. They are the Judean religious authority. All of those people together, they are the Judean religious authority. And those are the ones that are so often um, blasted by Jesus, rightfully so, for their hypocrisy, because they should know better. 
and yet they are um, deceiving the people and um, they themselves are deceived. They're blind leaders of the blind. And so often when we see the, the, the phrase, the Jews, everybody was Jewish, but so often when we see the phrase, the Jews, many times it's in relation to this specific crowd of Judean religious authority. And so, Nicodemus saith unto them, Nicodemus stands up, remember Nicodemus, John chapter 3, where Jesus said unto him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was Nicodemus he spoke to, that you must be born again. Nicodemus saith unto them, verse 50, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, doth our law judge a man before it hear him and know what he, what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went into his own house. So it was kind of like a non-event kind of thing, where all of this uproar kind of came to a head, and then they just kind of, oh, okay, all right, let's just, let's all settle down and go home. And so they did. And then we begun John chapter 8. In verse number 1, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. Now, Back when these were written, it was probably not like, okay, this is verse number 53 of John chapter 7. Now you begin John chapter 8. There was not divisions back then, okay, in these gospels in that way. And so we kind of do a disservice when we look at verse 53 and then stop. And then like eight years later, we look at chapter 8 verse 1. It was most likely the exact same day after the exact same event. The people went into their own houses, but Jesus, contrawise, went into the Mount of Olives. Okay, he, got, he just kind of camped out there. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And then we went through the woman taken in adultery and that whole entire scenario. And when we came down to verse number 30, verse number 30, as he spake these words, it says, many believed on him. There was many that quote-unquote believed. Okay, I think we can do this. I think we can get through this lesson. So, I mentioned this before about their belief. And it relates pretty well to what Mark is teaching in the book of Hebrews. That there are professors and there are possessors. There are those that profess Christ and maybe in the words of John chapter 8 verse 30, believe on him. And yet there are those that also receive. Those that really truly trust him as their savior and those that just kind of go along for the ride and kind of agree. That's kind of like the Jewish people in the book of Hebrews that are on the fence, that they're being encouraged to come to Jesus and to utterly abandon the Mosaic wall that they had been trusting in for so long. And so, <coughs> as he spake these words, many believed on him. Now, as mentioned previously, these who believed, they were professors. They were professing faith in him, and yet they do not have faith in him. These are unsaved, lost people. And I will show you that in a minute. They are professors, not possessors. In a few verses, this same crowd, this same crowd that's spoken of here that quote-unquote believes, this same crowd will be calling Jesus demon-possessed in just a few verses. Verse 30 simply shows us their willingness to listen to Jesus' words up to this point. They're saying, okay, Jesus, um, we're not going to try and and uh, take you and get you arrested and, 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 and kill you, like some of the religious authorities want us to do, we're going to stay and we're going we're gonna to listen. We're going to believe what you're saying. 
Okay? And it's kind of like a momentary status of this crowd. It is not a true, heartfelt repentance and reception of Jesus. It is just kind of like they're going along with what he's saying without putting up a fight. And I'll show you that here in just a minute. It is their denial of sinfulness and need of a Savior that's the problem. See, as long as everything is good, you know, it's like a social gospel, something where everybody can just get together. We put aside our doctrinal beliefs and we just kind of agree to disagree and everybody's good because we all claim the name Jesus. And so right here, they're kind of okay with what Jesus is saying. That sounds nice. That sounds nice having, a, a, you know, rivers of, 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 of living water. Um, that sounds nice, uh, having light and not walking in darkness. But wait until Jesus mentions a little three-letter word, sin. And then everything flips. Everything turns 180 in the other direction with this exact same crowd. Verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And ye shall, future, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You see, they were on the fence. They were professing. They were ready to listen. Had they received him yet? No. These verses show that these Jewish people were not truly saved. Jesus tells them that they must continue to hear, continue to listen, continue to receive what I'm telling you without blocking it. Don't block me out. Listen to what I have to say. And then if you listen to what I have to say and apply it, if you obey, then you will truly be my disciples indeed. And then you will know the truth and the truth will, future tense, set you free. Jesus doesn't say, praise the Lord. I'm so glad you guys have believed. You are now set free. That's not what he says. So we need to take what is said here by them believing in the context of they are momentarily believing his words. But they have not they have not trusted him as their Messiah, Savior, penalty, payment for their sin. Okay, so he says that if they do this, they shall, future tense, be made free. Listen to their response. Listen to their response in verse number 33. This is very telling as far as, are these Jewish people saved? Are they understanding their need for salvation? Verse 33, they answered him, We be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou that we should be made free? And so when Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. That's a very well-known verse. It's used out of context all over the place. You know, you hear people in secular TV shows, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free or the truth shall set you free. Brother, the truth is a great thing. It'll set you free. Just in a general sense, the truth, the truth will make you free. It's a very specific context of Jesus talking to some Jewish people about their need for salvation. And their response is not like, okay, that sounds good. We want to know the truth. We want to continue. We want to be free. Their response is, we don't need to be made free. Don't you know who we are? We're God's chosen people. We're Abraham's seed. This is a common sentiment among many Jewish people today. They are, they are God's chosen people. That never changed. They are children of Abraham. But... Their response often is that they don't need to be saved because of this. Some Christians believe this as well. This is called dual covenant theology. There are those out there uh, in quote-unquote Christendom, Christianity, that'll say, well, 
you know, Jesus is for us, but the Jewish people, they're, they're okay. We don't need to bother them. They're God's chosen people. Uh, they don't need Jesus. And that is a lie from Satan. Everything about Jesus' coming in its context and its origin and the description of how it would happen is all intrinsically related to the Jewish people. That he would come as their Messiah. And then Paul says it was a mystery that the Gentiles could be grafted in. I mean, Jesus blew apart the mold when he even just went to Samaria. People that were considered half Jewish. And uh, told them their need for salvation and that they, they too could be saved. Also, their statement of never being in bondage, is that even accurate? Have the Jewish people been enslaved any time, any time in history? Even just once, okay, maybe twice, three times? Yes, okay. Um, it is simple pride, simple pride. And that happens all the time with religious people. Whether you're dealing with a Jewish person or a Gentile person that is maybe a Catholic or maybe some form of Protestantism uh, that does not believe the true gospel, uh, oftentimes that religious cloak can become a, a trap, a snare of pride. I don't, need, I don't need this. I mean, don't you know how often I go to church or how much I give to the synagogue or whatever it might be? Don't you know my lineage, my heritage? And so we need to understand that many times in talking to religious people, Jewish or not, or maybe even sometimes when they're not religious, there's many a Jewish person that maybe has never even gone to a synagogue. You ever hear of, of Christer Christians? Okay, Christmas and, Christmas and Easter? Okay. Well, the Jewish people have kind of a similar counterpart to that. Many times there's Jewish people out there that would never, ever, 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 ever go to a synagogue except for maybe on the high holy days, okay? Uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and that's it. Or maybe they would just send in a check and buy mail and that's good enough. Or maybe they're, maybe they're atheistic. But when you talk to them about their need for salvation, um, whether they're religious or whether they're completely not religious at all, whether they're very secular, there can be this kind of hint of pride that, well, Jesus really isn't for me. I don't really need, I don't really need Jesus. I don't really need salvation. And so that's kind of what these Jewish people here are saying when Jesus tells them that they can possibly be made free by trusting in him. Okay, flip the page over. Jesus answered them. Verse 34. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. This is amazing. Because this is not what they were being told by the Pharisees. This is not what they were being told by the scribes or the Sadducees or the chief priests. No, nobody in the Jewish religious world in Jesus' day, as a majority, they weren't being told that there's a problem and it's called sin. Uh, the context... Uh, here, while I'm talking about this, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 53. The context of the coming of the Messiah cannot be separated from the idea of sin. And the Jewish world today, they so badly want to remove the idea of the Messiah from any context of sin. Isaiah 53 
It's kind of like in our world today, our humanistic society, we don't want to mention sin in general. We don't want to mention that there is a standard of holiness that God has set. We don't want to mention God at all. We don't want to mention right and wrong. We don't want to mention absolute truth, or they don't want to hear it anyway. I'll put it that way. But look at Isaiah 53. Look at verse number 5. But he was wounded for our, what? Transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. Verse number 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You cannot separate the coming of the Messiah with his purpose of being a sacrifice for sin. That is what the Jewish people want to do. They want to make the Messiah into a charismatic, military, political uh, leader slash deliverer. They want him to win battles for Israel. They want him to lead Israel in a charismatic way. Uh, they want him to unite basically everybody. They want him to bring world peace. Who does that sound like to you? The Antichrist. Okay. Is there anything mentioned about dying for the people of Israel as a sacrifice for sin? Is there anything about that, that Messiah in his existence and his purpose having anything to do with transgression, iniquity, or sin? Not in their mind. And that's dead wrong. It's absolutely wrong. Look down at verse number 8, Isaiah 53. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Here in Isaiah 53, I was amazed. I mean, I've read this a million times, but I was amazed to specifically look through for references to sin, iniquity, iniquity transgression. And it's like every other verse, more than every other verse. More than half the verses in this chapter mention one of those three. And that is the purpose for the Messiah's uh, coming. Verse number 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Every verse through the, through the end of the chapter now, uh, he shall make his soul an offering for sin. Verse number 11, uh, he shall bear their iniquities, the end of verse 11. And then verse number 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sin of many, made the intercession for the transgressors. Now, of course, the majority Jewish opinion is this is Israel. But Isaiah says, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. It doesn't work. The logic is completely flawed to say that this is Israel. And then also in Daniel 9.26, and I have a reference there, uh, the Messiah, when he comes, he shall be cut off, but not for himself. Okay, the only time uh, that the word Messiah in the English is translated Messiah in many of our uh, Bibles, Daniel 9.26, talks about him being cut off, being killed but not for himself. And so it is impossible to take the idea, the biblical idea of the Messiah and to remove it from the idea of sin. And so often when Jesus spoke, when he preached, when he talked, when he taught, he taught about sin. He taught about wickedness. He, he, he preached repentance. He preached uh, righteousness. And that the problem is not, there's not enough you know, justice in the world. The problem is not that there's not enough welfare to go around. The problem is not that we just can't all get along. And, and the problem is not, you know, lack of money. The problem is not lack of, you know, whatever it might be that we're concerned about today. The problem is sin. And Jesus is the answer. 
in, in, in one simple sentence, that's what this world needs. The problem is sin, and Jesus is the answer to every single problem that we have. And so, when Jesus mentions sin, the demeanor and the attitude of this crowd just shifts completely to anger, to hatred, to wrath. Uh, verse number 35. Jesus says, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. See, he's continuing this context of you'll be, you'll be made set free. And then the Jewish people say, we were never in bondage to any man. Jesus responds by saying, you know what? Whosoever is the servant, the slave, whosoever is in bondage to sin is the servant of sin. Whosoever commits sin, he said, is the servant of sin. And then he says, continuing this idea of the servant, the one that's in bondage, the one that's the slave, the one that is uh, the servant. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. This is, this is an amazing passage. Jesus is telling these Jewish people that although they were chosen to be servants of God, they are not free. Why were the Jewish people chosen? Were they chosen for salvation? No. Okay, they were chosen by God because he loved them and he wanted them to show himself to the rest of the world. They were to be his servant. A couple of times in the book of Isaiah, uh, Israel is referenced as the servant. The majority of times in Isaiah, the servant is the Messiah. And context can show you that. But Israel was to be God's servant. Okay? They were chosen to be God's servant to worship him, to follow him, and to uh, bring that light to all nations. But they were not guaranteed a get-to-heaven free ticket because of their lineage, because of their heritage, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was their, their fathers. They are, by their own nature, servants to sin rather than the Lord. The servant or slave is not an irrevocable irrevocably permanent position. If you're a servant, if you're a slave, can you just be kicked out? I'll put it in the way of servant, okay? Servant is the Bible word for employee, okay? Um, in fact, the Bible word for slave is the modern Hebrew word for employee, okay? And so um, work is related to slavery, etymologically, okay? By the words, by the words that are used in Hebrew, both in biblical and modern. But, um, so anyway, that servant, they're not guaranteed an irrevocable position in that house. The servant doesn't have that. But somebody that's a son does. Somebody that's a son in that house, think of the prodigal son. He was received back by open arms to his father. He didn't say, you're not my son anymore. He didn't say, get out of here. He said, you're my son. My son, which was dead, is now alive. You know, he thought his son was, was dead, and he rejoiced to see his son again. This position of a son is different. And then, referring to himself specifically as the son, the son of God. If the son, therefore, shall make you free. You see, Jesus has authority to do this. Make you free from what? Make you free from bondage to some other nation? No. Make you free from sin. Those that would like to take the New Testament and twist it and change it, 
Okay, like my friend, I've never met him. I just call him my friend. <laughs> Rabbi Shmuley Botek. He's the one that had Shalom in the Home, the show on TLC years ago. And he's known as America's Rabbi. I have a book by him in my office called Kosher Jesus, where he takes the New Testament and he makes Jesus kosher. He makes him palatable to the Jewish people. In order to do that, he purposefully takes passages of the New Testament and says, this is not accurate. Uh, this is not... Uh, legitimate. This is, this is not accurate. This is not real. This is just fabricated. And so when we take all those things out that we don't want about Jesus, then we have this little skeleton left of what we want Jesus to be. And Rabbi Shmuley's claim is that Jesus was a would-be Messiah that tried to deliver Israel from Rome and he got killed. He failed. That's Rabbi Shmuley's picture of who Jesus is. And that's how he can get by saying, okay, Jesus is okay now. Jesus is kosher now because the real Jesus he, he didn't talk about all this stuff. He wasn't some kind of spiritual Messiah trying to deliver from sin. That's what the Christians made him into. What Jesus talks about in his purpose was to come and to seek and save that which was lost. And here, he constantly brings up the idea of being freed, not from Rome, not from tyranny, not from some other nation, not to be a military political leader slash deliverer, but to save them from their sin, to make them free from being servants to sin. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, the position of a servant is temporary and limited. Jesus, as the only begotten Son of God, has power to set us free from our slavery to sin and to give us power to become sons of God, John 1.12. And then he says this in verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's seed. So he kind of there gives a, um, I don't know, a, a uh, what word am I looking for? Um, confirmation that he's recognizing the fact that they are physically descended from Abraham. But you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. Does this sound like people that were true believers? They just got saved in verse 30, didn't they? No, they did not. They were professing Christians professing believers, but they did not have uh, reception of Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior, as their deliverer from sin. They hated him at this point. They hated him. Everything flipped like a switch. And now Jesus knows their hearts, just like he knew those when the, the man that was sick of palsy being let down through the roof in that one location, and all the Jewish people that were there murmured when Jesus said, um, but that you may know that the Son of God hath power on earth to forgive sins, you know. Uh, they were upset, and Jesus knew that they murmured within themselves. He knew their thoughts. He's God. He knows their thoughts. He knows these guys' thoughts. He knows their thoughts better than they themselves know them, and he says, you seek to kill me. That is how agitated, and agitated doesn't even cover it, that is how full of wrath they became in an instant, desiring to kill him. We know this from Jesus' own words that they desired to kill him. Jesus knows their hearts. They, at that moment, wanted to kill him. Why? Because his word is being rejected. What made them flip that switch to instantly think of murdering him? What made them do that? Jesus says, you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. The things that he was saying to them about being set free from sin, about the son setting them free, that made them so angry and so full of wrath because they were rejecting it. We do not need this. We do not want this. We're Abraham's seed. We don't need to be set free. And in a response, they not only disagree with him, 
but they disagree so strongly and yet they are convicted so much that they desire to kill him. To end this conviction, to end his speaking, they so desired not to hear his words any longer that they even were moved to the point of wanting to kill him. He is offending them and they are getting upset. It is pride. You see, they just said a couple verses ago, we're Abraham's seed, we don't need to be set, made set free. Don't you know who we are, Jesus? And Jesus said, whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin, and the Son can make you free from that sin. Uh, they didn't want to think that. They didn't want to even toy with the idea that maybe they needed to be saved or set free. Um, Jesus will now strike to their hearts as he smashes their pride. Look at verse number 38. You can go ahead and close that door. We don't need to answer it right now. Um, verse number 38. He says, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. Interesting. Right now, he hasn't fully disclosed what he means by the phrase, your father. Verse 44 will tell us who Jesus is talking about. But his response, verse 38, immediately turns. Um, you've heard the phrase before, uh, well, maybe you haven't. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. Okay, in talking to somebody about Jesus and talking to somebody about their need for salvation. If they're receiving what you're saying and, and coming in humility and desiring that salvation, just like the publican that said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Um, grace is to be communicated to that person. But if somebody is prideful, if somebody is arrogant, the law is to show them that they're not so great and that they need salvation. Here, Jesus uh, doesn't mince any words, and he tells them the hard truth of who they're acting like and what they're doing. Verse number 39, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, I do that which I've seen with my father. You do that which you've seen with your father. That's a double-edged statement. He's saying that my father is God and that you're doing something that is not right and it relates to who you follow after in your characteristics of how you're acting. Their response is, Abraham is our father. Didn't we just tell you that? And Jesus saith unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Now, a couple verses ago, didn't he just say, I know that you're Abraham's seed? Okay, he was confirming, yes, you are the physical descendants of Abraham. Okay, there's no taking away of that. Somebody uh, that is a physical descendant of Abraham is Jewish. They will always be Jewish. That never changes. But how they act may completely contradict that lineage and that heritage. And what Jesus is saying here, much like uh, the New Testament tells us, even the Gentiles are children of Abraham by faith. Okay, we read in the New Testament. In the same way, uh, the Jewish people here, um, in spirit, they are not at all like Abraham. Just like how a Gentile in America in 2018 can trust Jesus as their Messiah and by faith can become a child of Abraham, okay? Meaning, symbolically, you are acting just like Abraham. You are following after him and you are thereby grafted in, okay, to the olive tree of the Jewish people and their blessing uh, in that respect. But here, Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. 
But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, and this did not Abraham. He's showing them, if you were Abraham's seed, and he'll say this in a couple of verses, you would love me. If you were truly acting like you are the children of Abraham, you would love me. But we see the opposite. You're seeking to kill me. Um, a man which told you the truth, which I've heard of God, and uh, this didn't Abraham. He didn't do this. They were Abraham's physical descendants, yes, but in heart and spirit, they do not take after Abraham. Then he says in verse 41, and this relates directly back to, I'm not sure if I had, okay, what I, what I said about uh, what Jesus said when he said, uh, you do that which you've seen with your father, okay, that's referenced both in verse 41 and verse 44, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said unto him, We be not born of fornication, we have one Father, even God. Now, this concept of God is our Father, it's not just the Jewish people here in John chapter 8 that have that point of view, right? We're all God's children, right? We're all just one big happy family. We're all, we're all God's children. I'm not talking about us in the room, I'm talking about worldwide. We're all, we're all God's children. Um, that concept is known as the universal fatherhood of God. It's shown in this chapter, in this verse, to be clearly false. There are people that may claim that God is their father, but the exact opposite is true. In their actions, in their deeds, uh, in verse 44, uh, they're, not, they're not of God. Uh, verse number 42, and I'm getting there in a minute here. Verse 42, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Remember that uh, one of the central themes of John is Jesus' what? His authority. And we see that over and over and over again, multiple times in each of these chapters. Jesus says, I didn't come of myself. I proceeded forth and came from God. He sent me. If you were truly his children, you would love now, this is a message that uh, I think a lot of Jewish people need to hear. It's a hard message to hear at the onset, especially if they're not prepped for it, to understand the Jewish context in the New Testament and Jesus as the Messiah. But many can claim that, well, you know, we're, we're, we're God's children. We're following the God of Israel. If you were truly following the God of Israel, you would believe in Jesus because he is the God of Israel in human flesh. Um, there's a, a passage, it may be here later in John chapter 8, um, where Jesus says that you basically do not know God. And if I, if I said that I didn't know God, I'd be a liar just like you, he says. And so it's important to realize that somebody's claims do not line it up at all with their actions and their beliefs. And Jesus calls them out on the carpet for that. He said, if, if, if you truly were from God, you would love me. Jesus is showing these Jewish people that although their words make the claim that they came from God, their actions and thoughts show otherwise. Their rejection of Jesus shows that they are not the children of God. It is impossible to separate Jesus the individual from the fact that he was sent from God the Father. That's what Rabbi Shmuley tries to do. 
That's what any Jewish person that tries to say, well, Jesus was a good teacher. He was a, he was a good rabbi, you know. Uh, anybody that tries to do that is trying to separate Jesus the individual from the God of Israel being the one that sent him. And you cannot do that. And here, as often seen in other passages in John, John chapter 6, John chapter 5, John chapter 4, and many more times in the book of John, we will see it again and again, Jesus' relationship to his Father. Jesus as the Son. Jesus as the one that doesn't speak of himself, but he speaks whatever the Father tells him to speak. He does whatever the Father tells him to do. He is uh, intrinsically and inseparably linked uh, to his origin, speaking of his coming from heaven. He's linked to the Father. He even said, I and my Father are one. He even said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It is a common motif in the book of John, a common theme. And so here, what the Jewish people would desire to do, uh, at, at, at the most pleasant result that they would desire, is just to not believe him and not believe that he was who he said he was and to believe he was just a man. And that's the common thing even today. 2,000 years later, many Jewish people, Jesus was just a man. He had nothing to do with the God of Israel. And yet if you read Jesus' own words, it, it's the exact opposite of what he taught about himself, about the God of Israel and his interactions with Jewish people that argued with him, that didn't like what he had to say, that rejected his teachings. If we look at his responses, uh, we find the truth. And so, verse 43, oh, this is amazing, okay? Verse 43, boy, I'm giving you guys a lot of cliffhangers. I hope I can get to these. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Now, verse 47, don't look ahead. Verse 47 will show us the importance behind this statement, okay? So keep that tucked away in the back of your mind. If I have to talk like an auctioneer, I'm not going to do that to you. I probably already am. <laughs> um, I will get to verse 47 to show you that, okay? But these Jewish people here, they hear, but they don't listen. I can, I can tell you, undoubtedly, they were hearing his words, meaning physically, their ears were... Uh, hearing sounds, they were hearing what Jesus was saying, but the point is they did not listen, they did not obey. Now in Hebrew, the idea of listening and hearing are the same word in Hebrew. I'm going to teach you something that's really kind of uh, interesting here after I get through these two points. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 9 says, children that will not hear the law of the Lord. It's an idea of they will not listen. They are willingly, um, you know, muting what is being taught. They will not hear. They refuse to hear the law of the Lord. Isaiah 6, look at this, verses 7 through 10. I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Uh, then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. And so there's a, also a theme in Scripture of people that will hear and yet not hear. You know what I'm saying? They will hear and not listen. This is an amazing, uh, amazing truth here, this next passage, or this next uh, statement. Here, the Hebrew concept of obedience is hinted at. Now, what language was the New Testament written in? It was written in Greek, okay, but it was a Jewish Greek. It was not Hebrew, but it was like 
just short of a Hebrew transliteration <laughs> into Greek. They were Greek words. It wasn't a Hebrew transliteration. But the Hebrew ideas in grammar and phrases and idioms and concepts and phrases just kind of jump off of the page. This is not like classical Greek. It's not like Socrates or Aristotle. This is a Jewish Greek. And so the concepts behind it, even though it's Greek, the concepts behind it are Hebrew oftentimes. This phrase, Shema Bakol. Can everybody say that? Shema Bakol. Literally means to hear in the voice. Okay? To hear in the voice. This phrase is a Hebrew idiom meaning to obey. Okay? Yes. Um, well, a lot of the Greek manuscripts that we have in the New Testament are entirely in Greek. Some people believe that Matthew and maybe portions of other passages in the Scripture were written in Hebrew or Aramaic, which is kind of like a sister language to Hebrew. Um, we can't say that with any absolute certainty, but what we can say with certainty is the Greek that we have as the original language of the New Testament for our manuscripts is a very Jewish, almost Hebraic Greek. Because the Jewish culture, the Jewish concepts, even phraseology and idioms from the Hebrew language come through. Not to mention there are times when Jesus speaks and he speaks in Aramaic. Now we know, this is interesting, we know this from the book of Acts, when Paul recounts his testimony to a crowd of Jewish people, I think it's on the stairs as they're going up into the tower there, um, he says to them that Jesus came and spoke unto him in the Hebrew tongue. So when we read in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus appears to Saul, okay, knocks him down, blinds him, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And, you know, Saul responds, what will thou have me to do, Lord, and, and, and so on. But we find out later in the book of Acts that that, in whole, that entire conversation was not in Aramaic, but it was in Hebrew. Jesus speaking to Saul on the road to Damascus was a Hebrew conversation. I believe it's Acts chapter 23 maybe. I don't know, I have to look it up. Uh, that references that Jesus spoke unto me in Hebrew, Paul says. Um, it's, a very, it's a very Jewish Greek, yes. So, um, but when, when, when the concept of uh, you cannot hear my word. You know, verse number 40, 43, why do, you, why do you not understand my speech even because you cannot hear my word? It's not that they, they, that they couldn't uh, hear the things that were coming out of his mouth. They couldn't audibly, you know, have those things enter into their ear canal and, and, and register in their brain. It's that they, they were blocking their ears, so to speak. They were not listening. And when it says they weren't listening, the idea of obedience is kind of implied. Because somebody could just, um, somebody could just listen. Like for instance, if I tell my son, and this is interesting, but if I tell my son, I say, Seth, go, go clean up the playroom, or clean up the mess that you made, or clean up after yourself on the table. This is not just picking on Seth, but you know, any of, any of those kids. Or if my wife tells me, uh-oh, if, she's, if she says, will you remember to take out the trash when you, you know, before you go out to work this morning or whatever? And, and, and I could hear that, okay? But if I, I, I could say I listened, 
But if I don't do it, did I, did I really listen? You know, and so obedience is kind of implied there. It's not explicitly stated, but obedience in the Hebrew mindset, okay, in the Jewish mindset, hearing, listening, and obeying are all linked by the same words. Hearing, listening, and obeying. Shema B'Kol. Uh, and it's translated a number of times in our English Bible, the phrase Shema B'Kol, as obey. To hear in the voice of, yes. Do, do they understand what they're hearing? Possibly. In some cases, they would understand, but reject. In other cases, they would be willingly ignorant of, you know. They would purposefully shut it out because they did not want to even understand, you know, just because of who was speaking in the context of what they were saying. What Jesus is stressing is their lack of obedience to his teaching. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Their response, we're Abraham's seed. We've never been in bondage to any man. You, you, you see here how there's kind of like a, like a conflict. There's kind of like a blockage there. There's something in the way of them obeying what he's saying. They could be listening, they could be hearing, but are they truly listening and hearing if they don't obey, like me taking out the trash or my son clearing the table or whatever it might be? Um, and so here, everything that Jesus says, even though in verse 30 it says that they believed. Now they were just kind of on the same page. Okay, Jesus, we're, we're, we're on the same page with you. We're not rejecting you. We're, we're listening up until this point. Jesus brings up the idea of sin. Well, hold on a second, Jesus. Stop, stop the train. We were never in bondage to any man. We're Abraham's seed. Don't you know who we are? Uh, Jesus says, you do that which you've seen with your father. And they say again, Abraham is our father. And then Jesus says, you do the deeds of your father. Then they say, we're not born of fornication. We're of one father, even God. And so there's this constant struggle. There's this constant battle of Jesus' words just hitting a block. They're not penetrating. They're not going in. They're not being understood. They're not being obeyed. It's kind of like the, the hard soil. You know, the gospel seed just, just bounces right off that gravel. You know, they're not... They're not understanding it. Their hearts are not softened. They are not humble. If they would realize like that publican that said, you know, beat upon his breast and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Or the thief on the cross that said, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. As opposed to the other guy that said, if you're really the Christ, save yourself and us. You know, it's, the Bible says he railed on him. And so we see a contrast of humility and obedience versus pride and uh, resistance, okay? And here, all that Jesus is getting from John chapter 8, verse 30 and beyond, it's all resistance, every single bit of it. There's not one bit of humility. There's not one bit of acceptance. There's not one bit of, of obedience to what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is stressing is their lack of obedience to his teaching. Abraham's faith was shown through his obedience, now, Abraham is known as the father of faith, right? And there's numerous times in the New Testament where his faith is highlighted. And we see that Abraham was justified uh, by faith. He was uh, accounted righteousness by faith. And what specifically 
showed his faith. Well, when God told him, get up out of your land, out of your country, out of your kindred, and go to a land I will show you, it says Abraham got up and went. When God told Abraham, Abraham, take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and, and take him to a mountain and sacrifice him on the mountain, I'm going to show you. And it says early he rose up. Abraham had faith. How did he show his faith? By his obedience. There's a passage uh, in the New Testament. It's in one of Paul's letters uh, where he says, I thank God that you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered to you. And that is in specific reference to the gospel. You have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered to you. And so our faith and our obedience are kind of one and the same. Kind of like how the book of James says, faith without works is dead. Those works are obedience. Okay? Um, think of Moses and the children of Israel on the shores of the Red Sea, or more properly the Reed Sea. You guys ever heard that before? Boy, I'm getting on a rabbit trail. Okay, so they're there on the shores of the Red Sea. And God says, put your, your staff in the water, you know, and the waters just part. Okay, good thing Bob's not here. He would talk about how the waters were congealed and we get into a big argument, a friendly argument, a fun time. Um, but what happens if all of those waters are parted? The ground is dry. The, the, the Egyptians are behind them, okay, rapidly enclosing on them. And Moses is like, eh, I believe that, I believe that God did this. I, I believe he'll set us free. You can't see my foot on the, on the TV and so he's getting ready to take a step, literally a step of faith. You have to take that first step. In Moses' case, it was a very literal step. That's his faith shown by his works. Okay, in, in, in terms relating to the gospel, uh, what do we have to do? Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Whether it's audibly said or in our hearts, Lord, save me. A bump on a log that says they have faith that is not saved, has never trusted Jesus as their Messiah or Savior, but they say, I, I have faith in Jesus. That faith is, 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 is nothing. That faith is worthless. If you, if you don't exercise that faith, that faith is not real faith unless it's exercised. That's the point. And so, uh, all right. So, verse 44, here we go. Year of your father, the devil. Wow. Okay, like I said, Jesus didn't mince words. And the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh it of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. All of those who have not trusted the God of Israel through Jesus the Messiah are children of disobedience and children of wrath and have as our father the devil, okay? Those that have not, have as their father, uh, those that have not trusted Jesus as their savior are children of disobedience, children of wrath, and have as their father the devil. For time's sake, I'm not going to turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 references those phrases. This is not an anti-Semitic statement. And this passage has been used. Oh, I shudder to think of the times that this has been used. The Jewish people are of their father the devil is what would be said. And it would be a blanket statement applied by those who desired to destroy the Jewish people with a hatred for the Jewish people and using the words of Jesus wrongfully and out of context to do so. Um, this statement right here 
Is this talking about Nicodemus? Is this talking about Matthew, whose, whose Jewish name was Levi? Is this talking about uh, Simeon, who uh, Jesus renamed uh, Kephas or Peter? But they're Jewish people. Are they of their father, the devil? No. Okay. Um, you and I, you know, um, when I was, I was thinking about this just today, there was um, some kids getting up to sing, kids' choir, at the church that we were just attending uh, earlier today. There was a, a jubilee going on, kind of like a camp meeting thing. And uh, they have a Christian school there, and they had kids from the junior high and high school get up to sing, and they were, you know, uh, there were some that were eighth grade or so. When I was in eighth grade, I was not saved. I was lost. I was a grungy, gothic kid. You can imagine that. I had, I had hair down to here, okay? Um, thankfully, all I, all, as far as I got was one piercing, but that would have gone much farther, most likely. Um, anyway, um, all of us, before we were saved, all of us, we followed after the devil. Whether we would admit it or not, our actions, okay, our sins, and all of that type of stuff, Okay? Never in Scripture are we told that God is the father of sin. He's not. Okay? Um, the first sin was where? Lucifer. Lucifer. Okay? Before Adam and Eve, before mankind fell, Lucifer. Okay? The angel of light. He had pride. And he rebelled against the creator. He took one-third of the angels with him in his rebellion. And that is what hell was originally created for, the devil and his angels. Just having pride, we make ourselves a, uh, a follower or a child of the devil. Um, and so, like I said, this statement should not be taken, as many have done, as a blanket statement about the Jewish people and how they, as opposed to the Gentiles, are children of the devil. Okay, biblically, all of the unsaved are in the realm of darkness. We're under the rule of the prince of the power of the air. We need to be saved and to be translated out of that kingdom of darkness. Um, this is not an anti-Semitic statement geared toward the Jewish people as a whole, but rather is a truth about all unsaved that is a glaring contrast in this passage. So why did Jesus mention you are of your father, the devil? Well, to uh, say it in a general sense, like I did, we are all children of the devil before we're saved. Okay? We are following him. We are following after him in our actions and our thoughts and our deeds and everything that we do. We are following after him before we come to Christ by faith. But here in this passage specifically, over and over again, Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father. Then they have this wrathful feeling that they're seeking to kill him, and yet they still say, Abraham is our father. After that feeling of wrath and desire to murder him, the words still come off their lips, Abraham is our father. Then they say, we are of our father, we have one father, even God, verse 41. This is after they have the wrathful thoughts in their hearts to kill him, and they are currently having those thoughts in this passage. And so when Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, it's not a blanket statement about all Jewish people. But here in the context, it is to show these who are so 
holding on falsely to their lineage and holding on saying that God is our father, Jesus turns that on its head by telling them who they're acting like and who they are uh, truly taking after. And that is the devil. The lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, when did Satan murder in the beginning? Adam? Eve? Abel? He had a part in all those, didn't he? Um, anyway, uh, 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 12, uh, talk about, well, all right, we are... Hmm. Hmm. I'm looking at this and thinking, hey, you know what? I have next week too. I do. So, all right, let's look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. At least I um, was able to clear up the end of John chapter 7. That makes me feel good. <laughs> okay, John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, and uh, verses 10 through 12. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling. Oh, I'm reading chapter 2. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Hmm, okay. Whosoever doth not righteousness is not of God. Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, American, Israeli, Russian, whatever, whatever you might be in your descendants, whosoever doth not righteousness is not of God. Neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now listen to this. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Why, and why did he slew him? Why did he kill him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. We can find out some amazing things about things that went on way back in Genesis and have some light shed on them in the completed revelation of God in the New Testament. Uh, why, did, why did Cain kill his brother? Well, because he was, he was angry that his brother had righteous works. Okay, that his brother's sacrifice was accepted and, and, and his Cain's was not. Um, and it says here, that Cain was of that wicked one. Jesus' words in John chapter, I hope you still have your, well, you've got the sheet in front of you. Jesus' words in John chapter 8, verse 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. Amazing, amazing truth. And when it says that when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh it of his own, that's basically saying when Satan, when Satan lies, he's not telling a lie that somebody else told him and he's passing it on. When Satan tells a lie, he is the originator of that lie. He came up with it right out of his own brain. Okay? Uh, he came up with it of himself. He's the father of it. I told you I'd get to verse 47, and I'm going to keep that promise. Okay? 
I don't know, maybe I'll be able to finish what we have and just give the life verses as reference. Verse 45, and because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. People only want to believe the truth that sounds good to them. Like the phrase, that's not my truth. They only want to believe or call truth what sounds good to them. How hypocritical that is. Verse 46, which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? No one can lay any charge of sin upon Jesus. He's totally without sin. You know that phrase, that, uh, that, that passage that talks about uh, he was in all ways tempted like as we are. I think it's in the book of Hebrews. He was in all ways tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And that phrase, without sin, means before, during, and after. Completely apart from sin. In the whole thing. Which of you can convince me of sin? Which of you can lay sin to my charge? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? And listen to this, verse 47. He that is of God heareth, what? God's words. You therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. All right, flip back to verse 43. Verse 43. The other page there. What does Jesus say? Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Skip to verse 47. He that is of God heareth God's words. You therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. How amazing is that? Jesus is claiming to be God right here. Verse 43 in combination with verse 47. You can't hear my words. Why, why do you not understand my speech even because you can't hear my words? He that's of God hears God's words. You therefore can hear them not because you're not of God. He's speaking of his own words as being God's words. Those that say Jesus never claimed to be God have not read this passage and many other, many other passages in the book of John. Verse 48 uh, then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast the devil? You see, now they're just getting upset and throwing whatever insults they can his way, whether unfounded or not. Uh, they are convicted and they are angry. Saying Jesus was a Samaritan was, a, was completely unfounded. They then called Jesus demon-possessed. These are those in verse 30 that it says they believed on him. They believed, but they did not receive. Okay, they were professors, not possessors. And this becomes abundantly clear through their actions. Jesus says, you're of your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. The lust of your father you will do. And then here they call him demon-possessed. Verse 49, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and you do dishonor me. And I seek not my own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Now the judgment of God committed to Jesus is mentioned in John 5, 6, and 7, and 8 already. The judgment of God being committed unto Jesus has been mentioned in all these chapters. It is a major issue that goes right along with the subject of Jesus' authority. I seek not my own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Now, I decided to include a slew of, you know, a whole bunch of verses. I don't know what the... Uh, word for a bunch of verses is there's a whole kinds of different animals that have you know funny names for like a flock or a, a murder of ducks is that what it's crows not ducks what's a what's a bunch of ducks called a, 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 I, was, I was gonna say a quackle 
<laughs> okay, so a gaggle of geese. Uh, okay, a murder of crows. Um, a, a bunch of verses, okay? A variety of verses. Um, all have to do with the idea of life and death. Okay. I'll just paraphrase Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 and 19. But Moses is before the people. He says, I set before you this day blessing and cursing, life and death. He's not setting before them four things. He's setting before them two things. Life and blessing, death and cursing. This is a Hebrew parallelism where they give a, a portion and then they give a second portion and those two are equated as being the same, as being parallel, as being synonymous. Life and blessing, death and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Okay? And so, what is death exactly? What is death biblically? Jesus says, if a man keep my saying, he shall never, he shall never see death. Separation, separation from God. That idea of life being blessing and the fullness of God's, experiencing the fullness of God's presence and the blessing of, of, of knowing him and glorifying him and having a relationship with him, that's life. Death is separation from God. It is cursing. It is everything that is diametrically opposed to life. Okay? When we look through these passages, and I'm just going to, Look through them real quickly here. We can get a very good idea of what biblically life is. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Chapter 3, verse 15, talks about having eternal life. Is same thing with verse 16. Okay? It's not just being alive forever. It's not just existing forever. It's not just having a pulse forever. It's having a relationship with God and experiencing the fullness and the blessing of his presence eternally. In Jesus was this, and he grants it unto those uh, that would trust in him. For as the Father hath life in himself, verse uh, 26 of chapter 5, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. John 6, 48, I am that bread of life. Uh, let's see here. Chapter 17, verse 3, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Flip the page over here. First uh, John five twelve. Skip down to near the uh, last third. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. When God told unto Adam, the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Adam didn't keel over dead that minute, that second, but he died spiritually, that instant. He was cut off and separated from the Creator. And the results of that separation took 900-something years to actually come to fruition physically. But, Abraham, but Adam, did I say Abraham before? Adam eventually succumbed to the results of sin. And that separation from the Creator, who is the life giver, he was cut off from him and he eventually died of natural causes, quote-unquote. Okay? Um... Look over these verses if you get a chance on your own um, and, and, and think about that. The difference between life and death, not clinical, medical life and death, but biblical definitions of life and death. It changes how you look at those words. Verse 52, Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Why? Because back in verse number 
51, Jesus said, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. You and I, biblically, we will never see death. Physical death is a doorway. Okay? My pastor likes to call it the exit of death. It's a doorway. Breathing one breath here and instantly to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. It's a door. But for the lost, it's a sad state of eternity. If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste death. You and I, we will never taste death. The, death of, uh, the sting of death is, is, is gone. The Jews said, and these are the, not the Jewish people in general, again, uh, but the specific ones that he's speaking to. Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead in the prophets, and thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? I've heard rabbis uh, talking about Jesus say that he's just making something of himself that he really wasn't. He's puffing himself up. He's saying all this stuff that's not true. It's exactly what the Jewish people say in John chapter 8. Who makest thou thyself? Listen to Jesus' answer. And this is, this is exactly what Jesus would say to the rabbi that wrote that book that I'm referring to. Jesus would say to him, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom you say that he is your God. Boy, that must have cut to their heart. Yet ye have not known him. You don't know him. You say that he's your God, but you don't know him. But I know him, and if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. Don't you, don't you like that? But I know him and keep his saying. The unbelieving Jewish people do not know God. They may claim to know the God of Israel. They may claim to worship the God of Israel. However, according to Jesus' own words, if they do not know him, if they do not know Jesus, they do not know the God of Israel. They do not know Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And then this last section of verses here. Your father rejoiced, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. When did Abraham see Jesus? Well, a couple different times Jesus appeared. Uh, God in the form of a man, human flesh, a Christophany as it's called. In Genesis chapter 18 and 19, we don't have time to look at that now. Maybe we'll explore that a little bit more in the future. I know Mark has referenced it a couple of times. Verse 57. Then the Jews said unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? How old would you guys, I don't want to say, I was going to say, how old do you guys think that I am? Um, but either way, uh, these Jewish people that were speaking to Jesus, I mean, fifty years old might just be kind of some kind of idea, you know, some kind of a generalization. Uh, but it seems to be maybe that Jesus didn't look like he was thirty-three. Maybe... He looked like he was a little bit older. Um, anyway, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. We had a good uh, class at the Good News, good news Club uh, last week, and the kids were asking about who, who created God. Does God have a mother? Does God have a father? You know? And... Um, how are they going to know unless we tell them? No, nobody ever created God. God has always been there. And I'll tell you guys the same thing. This is kind of weird if you've never done this before. 
I know when we try and think about eternity, we try and think about forever. Like you really try and think about, okay, I'm going to be in heaven for 800 million billion trillion years and 356 days. And then I have no less days than when I first begun, like the song says. We, we can't, I mean, if you, if you actually try and think about that, you have like a glitch in your brain and it's like, you know, it does not compute. <laughs> we cannot fathom that. Now, with that in mind, try and fathom eternity backwards and that God has always been there. That's amazing. But as Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He was always there. And then verse 59 then took up they stones to cast at him. They wanted to kill him right there. They took action to try and to kill him right there. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Uh, as I've said before, other times when Jesus slips by, those that are desiring to kill him, he had other plans for his death to be, than to be stoned near the temple, uh, but to die on a cross for you and me. Yes? It would have communicated the same idea. It wouldn't have been the same exact words. Um, God tells Moses, and this would be interesting for you uh, Hebrew aficionados. Um, God tells Moses, he says, Tell them that Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh hath sent me to you. That's what he says. We have it translated, I am that I am. Um, but the phrase also can mean, I, I will be that which I will be. Just that I am is what it communicates. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he's not only stating he was before Abraham, but as they took it, he was claiming to be God with that very statement. Before Abraham was, I am. And not a second passes by and they're picking up stones for blasphemy to slew him right there. And yet he, he escapes because he's going to die. Not for... Uh, these that are trying to uh, slay him for what he had said, but he's going to die as the substitute sacrifice, the atonement for you and for me, as well as the rest of the world. Any questions, comments? Attaboys, you finished John chapter 8? <laughs> Whatever. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer. And uh, next time, boy, I'm excited for next time. John chapter 9, it's an amazing, amazing passage of scripture. Uh, and Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. But I'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer, and we'll, we'll pray for the refreshments as well. Thank you, Father, so much for your love and your care for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that he went through. Uh, thank you for what your word teaches us and the words of Jesus that are recorded here for us and have been translated into our language that we can understand. We thank you for that, Lord. I pray that you would help us, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning prayer, that we would see Jesus and gain a more clear and crisp perspective and picture of who he is and what he says and, and, and what he does. We thank you for him. We thank you for his death upon the cross for all of us. We thank you for the refreshments that we're about to enjoy. We pray that you would uh, bless them and uh, bless the fellowship as well. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries 
thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.